Okay, I'd just like to um, say a few things. First is Pope Pius XII had a very difficult time because modernism is very subtle and the communist and Freemasons joined with the modernist and it was just like arsons all over the world starting fires and he, they, some of them were very hidden uh, like Father Benick mentioned Bishop McKenna was in Salchois in France in the monastery Dominican house with Congar and Chenu and they were both heretics and um, you know, sometimes they laid low. So it was really um, a difficult time for him. But he persevered and he lived the faith and he gave us a roadmap what to do today. His fight against heresy, we're just going back in history. In the 12th century, there was a heresy called Waldensians or, Waldensians or Waldenses. And it was a man that started like a bunch of people that would travel throughout and then just preach. But some became heretics, they were excommunicated, but they had something called the Lord's Supper. And then they, um, I don't know if you can even see, it's not even showing up right. Okay, but they made the changes of bad, belief and practice later used by Luther and, Mar and Vatican II were uh, promoted by them. There were two other heretics, John Wycliffe and John Huss. Uh, Wycliffe was in England, Huss in Bohemia, and they rejected the sacraments of penance, holy orders, extreme unction, something Vatican II changed. They denied papal infallibility and transubstantiation. The 15th century Erasmus was a humanist, friend of St. Thomas More, but he really tore down the image of the Catholic Church and its authority. And this, when the Reformation came, um, people uh, were ready because he destroyed the foundation. 16th century, we're familiar with Luther starting the Lutheran Church, Calvin, the Reformed Church, Cramner making the liturgy for the Anglican Church, and Knox for the Presbyterian Church. He started a new mass, and that was uh, devoid of sacrifice and rewrote the sacraments, had new doctrines, sound familiar to Vatican II. Now, they really had religions that were based on faith, not good works, little value for the commandments, and they replaced the supernatural with the natural, grace with emotion, prayer with action, God with the world. What's interesting also, Luther and Queen Elizabeth I both destroyed the priesthood. They had specific ceremonies that would invalidate this, the ordination rite and the consecration rite for priests and bishops. And so to this day, they do not have valid clergy. The 17th century, we have four groups. The Jansenists, we're familiar with them as promoting predestination and almost despair, but it's much more than that. All these things are interlocked, and as you research, the devil used all of them to undermine the Catholic Church. They prepared the way for Vatican II. Jansenists also had a liturgy. It's almost exactly like the Novus Ordo in 1729 or so. They had offertory procession. The um, priest uh, faced the people, and it was in the vernacular. What was difficult with the Jansenists, they were very much like the Arians. They controlled the churches. 
And so they weren't outside the church attacking. They were inside. And St. Louis de Montfort, St. Alphonsus Liguori had to attack them very strenuously, and uh, life was difficult for them because of that. The Pietists were in Germany. They were the new combination of ecumenism, universal priesthood of believers where everybody is the priest, and also everything is based on personal experience. So they didn't really need ritual or dogma. Quietists were beginnings of the New Age movement. What's really interesting, the more you study modernism, there's a lot of Hindu and Buddhist elements of that. No doctrine, everything changeable. God is very vague. And uh, they combined Islamic beliefs too. Jansenists also removed statues, promoted lay participation in the Mass, opposed adoration of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, and hated the Rosary. Sound familiar? 17th century were the Gallicans. These were people in France that opposed the Pope. They would decide what they would follow and what they would not follow from the Pope, doctrinally and when this church discipline. And we have remnant of that a little bit today with the Pius X Society, how they'll decide if it goes with tradition and then other groups that will decide which uh, papal um, liturgical practices they'll follow. 18th century, the Freemasons were very powerful. This is one of the major forces at Vatican II. What combined the secrecy of the Freemasons, the propaganda of the communist, and the subtleness of the modernists, that's how the devil accomplished what occurred at Vatican II. So the documents of Vatican II embody many of these principles. And so Locke, Hume, Rousseau, Voltaire, Diderot, all these different people, many of them were humanist and a lot of them were atheists or agnostics, deists. They basically destroyed the belief in God, so they started an age of reason. Robespierre started his own religion in France, and people said, we had enough. So what they did, they arrested him, and then he was placed, he started the reign of terror, he was placed in the same cell as Queen Marie Antoinette, and he didn't have a trial. He said, I need a trial. He said, you didn't give anybody else trials. So so he was beheaded, and uh, that ended his reign of terror. But this deified man, this concept, and, and it caused religious upheaval. France no longer was the eldest daughter of the church. It became a leading center of Freemasonry. Now, the 18th century, you're not familiar with this probably, there's a Holy Roman Emperor, Joseph II, and he acted like Justinian. He thought he could be Pope almost. So he would grant divorces, he would run seminaries, he would appoint bishops, and he opposed the Pope. And this was a bad idea because the church is monarchical and it goes off of Christ and the Pope. So this is... um, so. Subsequently, in a lot of those countries, France, Belgium, Austria, Germany, a lot of the bishops were chosen by the government. And if they're Freemason, Freemasonic leaders, guess what kind of people they'll put in office? Freemasons. Now, this is back a number of centuries. Now, Freemasonry began 1717 in England. It spread to Belgium, France, and North America, throughout Europe and the world. Now, it's very powerful. It's a secret society. 
It's like asking, what do you want to ask what goes on in the Masons? Well, ask what goes on in the CIA. You know, you get a, probably the same type of answer. It's a secret society. Today, there are 2 million Freemasons in the United States, 3 million throughout the world. There was a special group called the Illuminati that was founded by Adam Weishaupt in 1776, and they run the world. Now, the monasteries and parishes, many priests and clergy became Freemasons. The city of Caudebec, France, 15 out of 80 members of the lodge were Freemasons, and Seine, 20 out of 50. And then in Clairvaux, where St. Bernard had his monastery, they had a Masonic lodge right in the monastery. And Bishop Sarin of Strasbourg under Napoleon, he ruled the Grand Orient Lodges. 25% of the priests in France were Freemasons in 1789. 1789, it's a long time ago. Now, the Freemasons have a slogan, Ordo ex cao, okay, order out of chaos. They knew what was going to go in Vatican II. You infiltrate the church, do all these changes, everything becomes topsy-turvy, and you start a new religion. Well, that's what they'd accomplished. They want a new world order because they want to dethrone Christ and run their own world. So the new mass is called the new order of the mass. That wasn't a coincidence. The other thing is interesting. The modern church... They have the president's chair here and the uh, table here facing the people in the Masonic Lodge, and that faces east usually. In the Masonic Lodge, you have the chair of the Grand Master, and then you have Masonic altar in the front facing east. That wasn't a coincidence. Bunini probably planned that himself. Also, this is quite amazing. Albert Lantouane, a 33rd degree Mason, a French leader, Wanted to make a deal with the church. He wrote a letter to Pope Pius XI. Can't we just be friends? And he said, we are free thinkers. You are believers. Free masonry seeks to exalt man, the church to exalt God. We are the servants of Satan. You are the guardians of truth, are the servants of God. And then afterwards he said, can't we be friends? You know, I mean, it's just like completely opposite. But... Freemasonry is very powerful. Now they have basic principles. False religious liberty, in our book we call it false religious liberty. It's not religious liberty. Religious liberty in Catholic countries before Vatican II, Catholics would live their faith and they just asked non-Catholics not to have parades and not to proselytize. Now that wasn't anything out of the ordinary. So false religious liberty is you promote all these false religions and because there's no true religion. Freemasonry doesn't believe in a true religion. They don't believe in a true God. They follow the grand architect of the universe. They have the primacy of man over God, reason over faith, and they hate the Catholic Church. It's based on humanism, the human person. That, if you read John Paul II's writing, his whole life is based on humanism. It never goes beyond to a higher level. And naturalism, then everything's on a natural level. It never goes to the supernatural. The scary thing about Freemasonry, it has blood oaths. It has ritual and a code of silence. And if you squeal, you can die. Literally. It opposes belief in the Blessed Trinity and divine revelation by its very existence. 
They believe in the grand architect of the universe. They don't believe in the triune God. Any God works. And divine revelation? No. This is a human institution. Now, what's interesting in Freemasonry is it was quite amazing how subtle this was. Okay, they had these masons, brick masons. They went from town to town. They had trade secrets, how they would make vaults and how they would make arches, flying buttresses, whatever. So they went from place to place. Freemasons were ones that weren't attached to a guild. They could work for anybody. So they had trade secrets. They had passwords. So they stopped making cathedrals after the Reformation. So they thought, hey, why, uh, why can't we use these buildings? And we'll use the same term, Freemason. And so that's how it got going they, on 1717. So they accept all religions, the Bible, the Quran, the Torah, the Bhagavad Gita. Any holy book will work on the Masonic altar. So it just shows it doesn't really matter. And the letter G symbolizes geometry. It's not God. And you think the grand architect of the universe, it's like God, you know, this God has to make stuff. God can create. He makes it out of nothing. And to have this compass and the square, that, that's um, just natural level. I mean, nothing supernatural. Next part about their revolutions. They were responsible for many. French Revolution, you're all familiar with. The Italian Revolution to uproot the Papal States. The Portuguese Revolution during the time before Fatima and then the Spanish Civil War. Now what's interesting, the Mexican Civil War under Callez in 1926 to 29 and also the Spanish Civil War 1936 to 39 was uh, a joint effort the Masons joined the Communists. And what did they do? In Mexico, they killed 4,000 priests and countless laity were martyred. 1927, the Soviet Communists and the Spanish Freemasons worked together to overthrow the Spanish monarchy, destroy the Catholic Church. You can't destroy the church, it's made by God. They slaughtered during that time 13 bishops, 4,000 priests and seminarians, 2,000 monks and friars, 283 nuns, and 10% of the Catholic laity in Madrid. So just imagine all the people here. Anybody want to be 10%? Okay, you die. I mean, that's really horrible. Our new book will cover communism in a way you've never seen. We'll cover Freemasonry to unveil it, and also modernism, you'll understand it. The all-seeing eye of Freemasonry is pretty creepy. Now, the church did have a symbol, the all-seeing eye. It's in some old cathedrals in Europe. That's divine providence. God is looking after us. But Freemasons turned it, we're going to get you. If you squeal or you do anything that is against the Masons, you know, we know. And you took that oath and you could die. Now, the initiation is very creepy. And that's... A very real word. Just imagine if someone told you, okay, we got to put a noose around your neck, we got to blindfold you, and then you got to knock to ask for light. They're not asking from light, from Christ, the light of the world. They're asking from Lucifer, Prince of Darkness, Satan. 
Also, they have to walk around Masonic altar. Now, who else walks around the Masonic around altars? What false religions? The Druids, the Romans, the Greeks, also the Hindus and Muslims. Then, to remind you not to talk about what goes on in Masonic lodges, they put the points of the compass right by your heart, and they press it in. And you, you're blindfolded with a noose around your neck, and you make a oath never to reveal what goes on in the lodge. And you're offering yourself to the grand architect of the universe, even though some of the people don't realize it. Now, the popes condemn this. There's 200 different condemnations. Pope Clement XII condemned it early in 1738. Pope Leo XII wrote, if they were not acting wickedly, they would not have such a great hate for light, void entirely men who consider light darkness, darkness light. Then Pope Pius VIII, 9th, 11th, Gregory Sixteenth, Leo Thirteenth condemned religious indifferentism. One religion is good as another. Now, a number of bishops were very popular, loved Freemasonry. Uh, Bishop Donovan in Toledo was quite unique. Uh, many of you know Irene Fury, uh, God rest her soul. Uh, she was in Toledo when I was young, and her insurance man said, you know what, your bishop's in the same Freemasonic Lodge I'm in. And when she was catering for a company called Gladjill, uh, they had a special dinner for him in the Masonic Temple. These other bishops got um, Masonic awards. Cardinal Cody, Cushing, Cook went to the Masonic lodges, gave talks, had Masonic breakfast. Now, these are a number of alleged Freemasons of Vatican II. We list a number of others. Baggio is in the Curia, the offices in Rome. Bunini wrote the new mass. Casaroli was Secretary of State under... John Paul II, Leonard, um, helped really organize Vatican II like no one else. Rampola was almost elected pope during the time of Pope St. Pius X in that conclave. Ron Colley, John 23rd, you're familiar with. Suenens was one of the four moderators at Vatican II. He was extremely powerful. And Velo was Secretary of State under Paul VI, John Paul I, John Paul II. And uh, he might be responsible for the murder of John Paul I, at least he probably had a hand in it. He was going to lose his job. They had a list of all the Masons who were going to get kicked out of the Vatican, and he didn't want to lose his job. So a number of Vatican II documents promote Freemasonic ideals, the decree on ecumenism, religious freedom, dogmatic constitution of the church, the pastoral constitution of the church in the modern world, declaration in relation to the church to non-Christian religions. All these are permeated with Freemasonic ideals. Now, third group was the communists. We know about the Communist Manifesto, 1848, Karl Marx and Engel. We think about Lenin as a professional revolutionary. He killed four million people in Russia. And then we think of Stalin. That wasn't his uh, given name. He changed it. Stalin means man of steel. He thought he was Superman. So he killed 700,000 people in one year. And it's believed he's responsible for killing 600 million. He was the godfather of crime in Georgia, and he was a bank robber before he became secretary of the Communist Party. Now, communists are responsible for a lot of revolutions. You can see all the different countries. These are just a few of them. Think of how many people were killed during those revolutions. In China, probably 50, 60 million under Mao. 
We see Karl Marx, Lenin, Stalin, a lot of blood on their hands. Now, communists were excommunicated from the church in 1949. Holy See decreed anyone who's supported the communist, or, uh, read their literature, were to be denied the sacraments. And then it has statistics, how many millions of people were killed by the communist. And what happened was, um, this was compiled in 1964 by U.S. House of Representatives Judiciary Committee. Now, modernism is the last group we talk about briefly, and it's nothing that's modern in it at all. It's a compilation of all these old heresies. They deny the divinity of Christ, Christ in the Blessed Sacrament, need for a visible church, papal infallibility, just all types of things. So it combines the Reformation, Freemasonic ideas, and a lot of free thinkers, um, even Darwin's ideas, Hegel, Kant, Freud, and a number of other people. And they basically deny that there's divine revelation from God. They believe in evolution of doctrine, that everything keeps changing, that uh, there's nothing definite from God. And we can just make basically our own rules, moral relativity. And um, so who started it? A number of people did. We'll go into a whole list of people. And it's been 150 years they've been working on it. These people kind of made it into a belief system. Adolf von Harnack was from Germany. He was a Protestant, and he denied the Trinity and also the divinity of Christ. That's not a person you want to start a religion. And his student, Karl Barth, this is really important. This is a link to Vatican II. He started, Karl Barth, the World Council of Churches, which the communists used, and also he was one of the non-Catholic observers at Vatican II. A close friend of Hans Kuhn, Karl Rahner, von Balthasar. Alfred Loisi from France was a apostate priest at the Institut Catholique de Paris. That became a training camp, you could say, for modernists for a great period of time. And he said doctrines were just human fabrication. They changed with the times. And Tyrell was from Ireland. He was a former Jesuit, and he just said people can make up their own morals. Now, Tyrell and Loisi ended up as basically as atheists when they died. Now, what did modernists, what's their plan? This is where Pius XII comes in. Why didn't he do something? He tried. He tried very hard, and our book will show that. They would infiltrate the church. It wasn't just the United States. It wasn't just France. It wasn't just Belgium. It's South America, Africa. They were all over the world. They were training a whole new set of clergy, but they were so closely united it was hard to detect. Then they offered counterfeits. The church had certain movements going on. I don't like to use the word movements because it's not movement. It's just a way of something going on. But they offer counterfeits. We'll cover that. Arouse interest. Hey, this is new. This is modern. And then you recruit helpers. Then you indoctrinate people. And then you prepare successors and keep the masses confused. This is very important here. I'm sorry you can't see this. I don't know why it doesn't work on the screen. I apologize. Okay, this one means... We, can move, we can't move this either. Okay, the first one is to embellish the liturgy. That's what Papias XII did. He allowed the... Fast, uh, three-hour fast, evening masses, and um, restored Holy Week. 
Modernists want to change the liturgy. The Catholic is to understand the Bible better. Papias XII wrote encyclical on Scripture. He promoted the use of Scripture. Modernists promoted doubting Scripture. The popes promoted the study of the Church Fathers. Any of the priests here, we use it in our sermons, and uh, they're just uh, great writers of the Church. And modernists had something called Rassassement, and that was to return to the sources. In other words, we got to do communion in the hand, and we got to do these different things, laity drinking out of the cup. Probably stopped at the Black Death, St. Thomas Aquinas. No, really, literally. I mean, I mean, would you want to drink a cup that someone just, you know, just uh, died the day before? Or, I mean, was going to die. They had the whatever. So, um, ring around the rosy, right? That's, I mean, literally, that's what it was. It was a, a ring that would, they would die within a day or so. So, there's certain practices the church discontinued. And um, they just said, we've got to go back to that. No, we don't. And the altar was never, mass was never altered, offered on a table facing the people. There's no historical evidence for that. The church always wants to convert non-Catholics, ecumenism. Let's get all the religions. Let's just be friends. And the thing about ecumenism, what's happened in the last 50 years since Vatican II? Nothing. No religions are closer together. They're false religions, as they always have been. Catholic action is very important. Without all your help, your parishes could not function. Your priests all depend on you. Your sisters depend on you. And we all need your support and your prayers. Vatican II changed that to lay control. That lay, lady run the parish board. They run the liturgy. They... I mean, it's just not right. Now, monitors had a lot of training camps. This is all in our book. I'm sorry you can't see it. I don't know why it doesn't fit on here. Like I said, I apologize. But the thing I'd like to show you is uh, the cities. This is very important. Okay, see how Brussels, Lyon, France, that was Fauvier, that was a leading Jesuit house where a lot of modernist literature went out in the 1930s. And then we think of... Um, Another one is Salchois in France. That's where the Dominicans spread things from the 1930s on. Pius XII uh, muzzled these people. Uh, they were not allowed to preach. They were not allowed to teach in seminaries. And then John XXIII said, come on, guys, you're, let's go. We need you for Vatican II. They were the ones that helped write the decrees, many of these people. Also, to Bingen on the bottom. This is interesting. I've never heard of this before, but there's, it's a college that's half Catholic and half Protestant, and they work together, and that's um, a lot, they trained a lot of the people. A lot of the modernists were from there. Hans Kuhn, Karl Rahner, um, Ratzinger taught there. Uh, so uh, Martin Luther, Melanchthon, a close friend of his, helped start the place. Okay, now this is a liturgical experimentation during Vatican II. Now, this is something you all have to know. Pius XII was not aware of the stuff that was going on in many places. Think of this. When there's a world war going on, how much are you going to know what goes on in some monastery in western Belgium or something? Or, you know, I mean, literally. Or southern Germany. How are you going to know? Now, things that are important here, Maria Lach is really important. This was became a center. And the people there in Amaraso in Belgium trained the people in St. John's Abbey, Collegeville, Minnesota, Benedictines. And this is where all the modernist liturgical movement goes. La Sachoie 
This is really important because this was a doctrinal thing, but they were playing with the liturgy there too. This was after Vatican II, but before, during Pius XII time, they were experimenting with the liturgy, but you know where they did it? In the crypt. Basically, they're doing like experimental masses in the basement, you know, probably after night prayers or something. No, literally, that's what happened. So Pius XII didn't know about that. He was in Germany. He opposed everything that was going on here. He knew about some of the things, and he got on them. And Pope Pius XI found out about what the Benedictines were doing, and he had him come there, and he said the Benedictines were an order without order. So this is some conferences. Now, this is really important. I'm sorry you don't see the names. Levain is first, Maria Hawk, Collegeville, Minnesota. How, look, at they show up, 1911, 1914, 1929. Vatican II had, got planned 100 years ago. So a man named Gardini wrote a book called Spirit of the Liturgy, 1918. Everything the new mass has, basically. Been working on this for a long time. Now, I'll end up quick. We're almost done. Um, Pope Pius XII. Now, some people say, yeah, he was, okay, here's what happened. There's two things that occurred. One group says that the modernists say, hey, Pius XII, he's one of us. He started all this. That's a lie. That's not true. And another group said, all these changes, we can't follow him because, you know, he was a modernist, traditionalist today, and that's not right either. So here's what happened. Pius Twelfth opposed modernist liturgists everywhere he could. And he, that's why he didn't make a lot of cardinals. He went to the, there was a, a meeting in Assisi, and he went there, and the modernist who gave talks just laid real low. So they didn't show their colors till afterwards. And so the Easter... Um, liturgy is not modernist. Okay, so this is from 1954, Catholic Almanac. The difference, okay, just basically, I know maybe you can't see it real good. Can you see this at all? Okay, that's what I thought. It's light. Okay, I'll just tell you briefly. Okay, what we do for the ceremony is they have the Paschal candle and you cut the Alpha and Omega and a cross and you put grains of incense with uh, wax things. Okay, so that's something that Pope Pius XII reinstored. It's called the Restored Holy Week. And if you saw the movie on St. Patrick, you see him doing a midnight mass for Easter. So this is something Pope Gregory the Great, actually, he did a lot of the, he went to four lessons instead of the 12 lessons. Can you imagine uh, chanting them in the Vatican in Greek, Latin, and uh, Hebrew? Can you imagine how long that took? 12 of them? So, and then the Paschal, so with, they did before Vatican II is they had, I mean, before Pius XII, they had a, a, a triple candle that was brought into church. But the Paschal candle, I think all of us like that. It symbolizes Christ's resurrection a little bit better. The other thing is um, the shorter lessons. And the Litany of the Saints is chanted, but it's not doubled. If you double, it takes twice as long. I mean, you're tired anyway at midnight, you know, uh, and you're going to do that twice as long. Um, so they cut up half the litany at the front, half at the end, the blessing of baptismal or renewal of baptismal vows. The pre-Pius the 12th, uh, his 19, um, like 55 Holy Week, was they did not do the baptismal renewal of vows. So there's nothing modernist on that at all. Now, just quickly, there's just a couple of encyclicals. Just hit them quick, and this is the last picture after that, so don't be afraid. Uh, Mediator Day was Pius XII's very strong um, attack against modernists. He opposed use of tables, the vernacular, 
we have to use black for funeral masses, and uh, he stressed the importance of interior prayer and personal piety at mass. Humani generis is where he condemned those who denied original sin, transubstantiation, and that sin was an offense against God. He condemned ecumenism and dogmatic relativism. This is exactly what happened just a few years later. This is 1950, so 1965 Vatican II concluded. You know, he condemned all those things just uh, 15 years earlier. On sacred music, he, what was important there, he quoted past popes and everything had to be proper for the church, nothing incongruous, and then Mystici Corporis gave a clear definition of the church. Vatican II said it's a mystery, it's a sacrament, it's none of those things. It's the mystical body of Christ, and it's the, those who are united under the authority of the church. There's no pope right now, but we believe in the papacy. And uh, so normal times, it's under the authority of the pope. We're following the popes. So if somebody asks you, are you with the pope? Say, I'm with the popes, all 260 of them. Oh, really? I mean that. Okay, so, and then they have the same mass sacraments and teachings. So those are the, that's what it means to be a Catholic. It's not some kind of invisible get-together. Now, last thing I'm just going to do in closing, Pope Pius XII is called Pastor Angelicus, angelic pastor for a reason. And he displayed a degree of love of God, defense of the Catholic faith that's unparalleled. And you see what he did during World War II. I don't know anybody in the world that could have done that. His love for prayer, the Mass and Sacraments, Divine Office and Rosary is evident in all the pictures you see of him. When he was offering Mass, he was like transfixed. I mean, it was just, um, and he, you know, he was a regular person. I mean, he had a, I think it was a pet canary or something. And, you know, he, he just, he liked children. I mean, he, he, does, he loved everyone. And so he had a great sense of peace. Now, thing I'd just like to real quickly, he had a, Childlike love for Our Lady, and uh, I'm not going to repeat what the other priests said. Uh, and uh, but he uh, was really pretty incredible. Someone when they saw him, an American journalist said they, they thought they were in the presence of a saint, and I, I really think that's true. Okay, how did he die? Okay, he was in Castle Gandolfo, the summer residence of the Pope, and he asked to receive Holy Communion. So uh, October 9, 1958, around 7 a.m. Uh, he was put in, asked to sit in an armchair, and they gave him a crucifix, and he just kept kissing it. He went in and out of um, being conscious. And then seeing uh, that his hand was feeling for um, something, uh, they put the rosary in his fingers, and his hand became still. So these are the last hours of the angelic pastor, Pope Pius XII. So he who so loved the rosary died during the month of the rosary, and he was holding his rosary. So uh, I think that's part of the theme, you know, too, Pope of Fatima, Pope of the Rosary. Well, I think that's Pope Pius XII. So God bless you all, and uh, wish you the best. Keep me in your prayers here in mine, and thank you.